my definition of success is embracing like the hustling grind for whatever it is your goal is. All right, guys, it is an incredible honor to have Dr. Anika Gorgani here with me today. She's a primary care doctor out here in Long Island. Um, I believe you practice in Suffolk County, correct? Yeah, I practice in Greenlawn. Um, so we just moved from Park Avenue in Huntington to a new office in Cuba Hill in Greenlawn. And I work for Mount Sinai Doctors of Long Island. And I'm a family mes- family physician. Well, it's always good to have a fellow Mount Sinai doctor in the house. Yeah. As you know, I'm an attending at Sinai in the city Definitely. at the mothership. So yes. it's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, our Thank topic... you for having me. I'm so honored to be here with you. Well, it's, we're, it's a love fest. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into some heavy stuff today. Um, so one of Dr. Gorgani's passions is uh, obviously helping her patients as much as she can. She has a very sort of broad view in what that encompasses. I'm including screening patients for domestic violence issues, which is such an incredibly relevant topic. I mean, it always has been, but particularly just with the political climate, uh, I don't think I really need to dive into it. And just, you know, all the stuff that's been in the news with like the Harvey Weinstein stuff. And, you know, it's a, it's extraordinarily relevant and we're going to dive into it. But before we do, um, I just want to, uh, my audience and me to learn a little bit about the person you are and what kind of drove you into medicine. So... I like to start way back, um, oh, so let's just start with, you know, where you grew up. Sure, yeah, you know, I actually grew up in Long Island. Um, I was born in Coney Island, where, you know, most Pakistanis were born in Brooklyn, and um, my parents were immigrants. They wanted to live that, you know, immigrant dream, I guess it is, the American dream, and we moved to Long Island when I was around five years old, and I started school in at kindergarten in Jericho, so I went to Jericho. And graduated from there. And then I went to Stony Brook for undergrad. And I went to Ross University for medical school, which is in the Caribbean. And it was, you know, um, it was hard going away, uh, you know, being away from your family and everything. But, you know, I survived the island. That's the terminology that we use. And then I ended up going to residency in Bronx, in the Bronx, Bronx, Lebanon, where I did my family medicine uh, residency for three years. And... I then got a job at Mount Sinai, and in between all that, got married, had two kids, and, you know, just trying to balance that mom-doctor life. It's hard. It's hard. That is that is no easy task. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Our stories are, like, pretty parallel. My mom came over. I lived in Brooklyn until I was five, mm-hmm. and then I moved to Long Island. There uh, we go. I grew up on the South Shore of Long Island, but my kids go to Jericho schools where you went. So, oh, yeah, I lived locally. So that's so cool. That's a, that's a really kind of small world. Our worlds really intersect. Yeah, they did. And then I met you. That's it. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. Are your were, were your parents physicians? Did they come here to practice no, medicine? No, no. My parents are not physicians. Uh, my dad was a lawyer back in Pakistan, but when he came here, you know, uh, back in the eighties. Your education, wherever you were, you know, wherever you were brought up outside America, it wasn't really recognized like that. So my dad, um, you know, he he worked in mostly accounting and that kind of thing. And now he does like insurances. And my mom, she was not a physician as well. And she works with children with disabilities now. She helps out with kids and disabilities. So 
they both um, were passionate for me to become a physician. And what's funny is that I don't remember. Classic East Asian. Yeah, you know. I mean, I actually never had any other dreams, though. I actually wanted to be a doctor. I still remember when I was in, I think, second or first grade, and the fifth graders came up to us and they made everyone say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said I wanted to be a doctor. And it's even in my fifth grade yearbook. There you go. It says future doctor. So, um, yeah, you know, I always wanted to be in primary care. I really find that that relationship that you have with your physician is so important. And I think, and that's another reason why this topic is important because you need to build that, not just rapport, but that trusting relationship really with someone you trust. And when it comes to my patients, I do see that they come to me and they open up about everything. You know, I have a box of tissues in my room because the amount of people that come in with different, whatever the, whatever the issue may be, whether it's, you know, their parent is dying or they have an issue with their husband or child, they open up to their primary care. You know, so primary care is extremely important, especially now. I, I feel like with everything that's going on in the world, you need someone you can just go to and talk to. Um, sometimes I just talk to my patients about what's going on in their life and the medicine is even even in, not there in that visit. Um, and that's something that I always felt like I would be good at. I would be good at developing that relationship. And that's why I chose primary care. Um, what's funny is my mom, she's a part of UPNA. I'm not sure if you know what UPNA is. You know, UPNA is basically the Alliance of uh, Physicians from Pakistan. Mm. So she's, um... It's like Oppie for same sort of thing. Right. So she's, um, she's kind of like a guest member and uh, a lot of her friends are physicians and, you know, they work seven on, seven off hospitalists and they love their job. And my mom was like, why don't you do that? And I was like, yeah, mom, you know, I'm sure the lifestyle is better. You get seven days off, but that's just not my passion. And I want to do something I'm passionate about. And that is really getting to know people and knowing what is affecting their health and what I can do on more of a personal level to help with their health. And I think I have been helping my patients in that level. And I'm excited to move forward with my career in doing that. Well, I mean, I can, you seem like such an incredibly easy person to talk to and you're so like warm and inviting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I can imagine your patients like immediately develop a great rapport with you. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. In my, my New York City office, there are two primary care doctors that work directly directly across from me uh, in the office that's across the hall. Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of deal. Like one of the doctors, his name is Jerry Clements. He sees entire families and he's been yeah. seeing them for, he must be, you know, he's in his 50s now yeah. or maybe a little bit older, but he's been seeing like patients for like 20 years. So he yeah. started out seeing somebody, then he started seeing their husband or wife, then he started seeing their kids as well. An entire family see him and like, God, that's like such an incredibly special thing. Yeah, it is. Because not only like, you know, it's so cool taking care of families, but like you've seen these families form and you kind of know the ins and outs of each member of the family individually. So true. And to be able to sort of triage issues. And you're right, being a doctor is so much more than, hey, like for me, hey, I have this rash and can you help me or whatever, I've got sniffles or, you know, my stomach hurts. It's knowing your patient and like, you know, having a human 
the human relationship touch. with yeah. them. You know, like that's that's what being a doctor is. You know, like absolutely. Like otherwise, you're kind of just like a clinician. You know? I know what you mean. But being a doctor to me means so much more. You know, and then what you said just really captures that so beautifully. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. And to your point, you know, I have. I think the best compliment I I get is when women bring their husbands to me. Right. And they're like, you know what? I want you to be my husband's doctor. To me, that they look past, you know, me being a female physician and really just being someone that they trust. And I've, I actually see adolescents as well. I see adolescents. And recently, I actually even picked up another shift at my clinic. And I, I'm helping just temporarily with... Um, with pediatrics. Oh, wow. So it's just like an acute visit thing. I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a pediatrician, but I do help with the acute visits for now. So I really do see adolescents too. I have a, you know, a hundred year old patient. Uh, I have a 96 year old patient. I, I see, I see you're right. Like I see the teenagers, the 20 year olds, the 30 year olds, their parents, and then their parents. And yeah. And I, I, I always get really close to the people that bring their family members to me because it just shows how much they trust me, not just my um, medical advice, but just um, trusting my opinion in general. So, you know, primary care for me is it's not a job. It's almost a lifestyle and it was my calling and I'm really glad I'm in it. I'm glad you're in it too. I'm sure your patients are glad too. I mean, you really practice family medicine. You know, that's, it's not, a lot of family med doctors now will, focus on you know just internal medicine for mm-hmm. the most part yeah but it's really rare for me to really see a family medicine specialist you know you're right it's not that common especially in new york um given that there's uh the specialties out there with pediatrics gyn um internal medicine and i think that so the department i work for i work in an internal medicine department and i'm the only one that's seeing 15 year olds wow. you know so it is different as a family physician, and I'm open. I mean, I'm not seeing GYN right now. However, I would be open to it, and I've talked to the my OB colleagues that maybe if they needed some help here and there, I could you know assist them. So it's really a it's actually a, a great field, and I'm so uh, lucky to be in it. I feel I feel lucky to be in that field. Well, that's that's why you're so good at it. <laughs> so going, I'm going way back here, like you know, 20 years when I was uh, you know doing my family med rotation or internal medicine yeah. rotation. I know a big part of preventive medicine uh, or a big part of internal medicine or family medicine is preventive medicine, preventive care. So that, you know, with that, there are tons of different, you know, screening tests and like guidelines that you have to follow, like, you know, get your colonoscopy at such and such age and mammograms should happen at such and such age, you know, yearly skin cancer screenings, you know, those that need them. Refer to you. Um, (laughs) Included with that are, you know, I'm going by memory, there's like a cognitive assessment as you're getting older, you mm-hmm. know, like sort of the the, uh, the dementia tests that you do, um, depression screenings. Mm-hmm. So now with the way things are kind of going with, you know, all the stuff that's been in the news lately, mm-hmm. one of the things that you mentioned to me that's really being pushed, like, it sounds like even in, in the meetings and stuff, mm-hmm. is domestic violence screening and, yep. you know, which is, that wasn't really going on when I was a medical student 20 years ago. So that's, right. I think that's, would you say that's something that's more novel or, or sort of a newer screening Absolutely. thing that's happening? Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but October is um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And October of 2018, so last month, 
there was a new guideline that was published by the United States Preventive um, Services Tax Task Force, otherwise known as the USPSTF, and that is basically um, clinicians are recommended to screen women of childbearing age up until their 40s for in- intimate partner violence. And I think it's a huge, huge thing because I'm not sure if people, sorry, I'm not sure if clinicians in the past really were screening. I'm sure they have been, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure that people ask, you know, how are you? Being, do you repeated, feel safe? That kind of thing. I'm sorry to cut you off. I remember like in, uh, you know, in the pediatric rotation. Right. You know, you'd obviously screen for child, child abuse. abuse. And, you know, even when you were doing an emergency medicine rotation, like those sorts of things. So I guess this is sort of like an extension. It is of an that, extension right? of it. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. So, um, child m- maltreatment is a part of that task force as well, and that is a part of pediatrics and um, screening purposes. And I'm not sure if you know. I'm sure actually, you know, we all have to when we get our license in New York State. You do that CPS course. Mm-hmm. Every one of us has to do it. Nurses, I think teachers have to do it. Police officers have to do it. Physicians do it. And even child care workers. So New York State um, mandates anyone of those uh, professions to report child abuse. I did not find in my research any mandates on other kind of abuse when it comes to adult or elderly. Um, however, we do have to obviously report if there's some kind of maltreatment when it comes to anything kind of guns or knives. Mm-hmm. That is obvious. You know, you p- report that to police. But... When it comes to anyone over the age of 18, there's no mandates. However, with this new guideline, I think it will start with medical students. You know, now medical students will now be trained with this new guideline in place, right? That when you have that opportunity, you have a 30-minute appointment with the patient, you have a physical, or you have a 15-minute follow-up, or even the dermatologist, Mm -hmm. you know, that gets to see a patient and they see something, do they raise the red flag? It should be raised. We should be asking people, do you feel safe? And it is important. And I I know that I have been implementing it. Uh, I know my practice. So is that and, the question you're asking your patients? Like what so, for us, like who are kind of I mean, you're really on the front line, but you know, mm-hmm. as someone who sees patients as well. Yeah. What do you say? Like how do you for other physicians? Yeah, like what, what, think, what do you ask I your patients? I think it's an easy question to ask. I, I think it's a question where you could basically say, you know, how's everything at home? How are you doing with your husband? How's everything? You feeling, you know, everything's okay? And you know what? You'll get that sense. Because the point of this guideline isn't for obvious signs. It's for non-obvious signs. It's to find... Um, a positive response in that non-obvious sign. We are not going to know if someone's being abused if they don't have any physical symptoms that you see. But there's so much and so many other types of abuse. Right. And whether, you know, and that's the topic I really wanted to speak about was not just physical abuse that you could see, it's the mental abuse that can cause Can you go over like some of Yeah, that yeah, stuff? sure. So basically, you know, what the term is is intimate partner violence. That's the main um, guideline that came out. It's about intimate partner violence. So what's an intimate partner? It could be anyone that you've dated, anyone that you've had any kind of relationship with, whether it's a spouse, 
a girlfriend, a boyfriend, uh, someone you casually had a relationship with, a fling, a hookup, you know, people go on, you know, what's going yeah. on in the world right now, the kind of um, uh, relationships, Tinder, dates, Tinder like whatever it is. And any one of those relationships, any kind of intimate relationship that you can have is the kind of um, thing that we're looking for. That is there any violence or any kind of abuse in any of those relationships? So the kind of violence. So you're really looking for people that have been through any kind of physical violence, obviously. So physical violence includes slapping, hitting, pushing, pushing against a wall, choking, uh, kicking, and more dangerous things are like burning. These are, there's so many little things. Right. You know, there's so many things that really is embedded in that in that term of physical violence. And then there's the obvious sexual violence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we know what sexual violence really does entail, whether it's rape or, co you know, some kind of sexual coercion mm -hmm. or anything of that nature. And then there's the mental abuse. And mental abuse is so variable. There's so much variation in it. And something that I was actually reading was um, that there's certain coercions that you can uh, create or a partner can create for their other partner that encompasses abuse. And that includes even like limiting spending, limiting their financial spending so that they feel that they are powerless. Right. It's like a sort of a power, maintaining power. Maintaining that, that power. Want. I mean, that is how much, you know, how important this topic is because there's so many little things mm -hmm. that's really, really, um, that's, these are the details that we really need to know about. It's not just that physical abuse. It's the other kinds of abuse that we really need to screen for. So I guess that two questions I have is sure. one, do you find that your patients are opening up to you about these issues? And two is when they do, like, what do you do? Sure. So um, that's a great question. You know, I, the first thing is you have to build that rapport like we were talking about. You, no one's going to tell you, you know, oh, yeah, I'm abused. No one's going to say that to you. You really need to know how to ask the question like you were saying. And you have to get to it. You have to wait. You have to know when to ask. And building that rapport is super important. Um, I The way I ask it is I ask them point blank sometimes. Are you abused? Any kind of abuse? And usually, you know, the answer is no. But sometimes the answer is yes. And you have to know then the next step is what kind of abuse? Mental, sexual, physical, emotional. Are you emotionally being abused? Is someone insulting you all the time? Because insulting is also a form of abuse as well. Do you feel like when you're out with that person that they're always just making fun of you or, you know, that you just don't feel comfortable, that you feel embarrassed? All these things are important questions to ask. And you really know, you need to know how to ask them. And you have to be comfortable asking them. And that's another, that's another point is a family physician or internal medicine or primary care in general you have to be comfortable asking these questions. Right. You have to be. It's a part of your job. It's a part of our job to know what's going on in our patients' lives. I know that there are time constraints. 
you know, we know that. I mean, the way that <laughs> medicine works right now, we get, what, maybe 10, 15 minutes with a patient, really, even in a 30-minute physical. After being vital and all that stuff, I get like 15, 20 minutes with the person. I have to go through the mammograms and the colonoscopies and all that stuff. So you have to make it a point. You have to go deep. And you really need to ask those uncomfortable questions because it is so important to know. It is so important that they feel like they have somebody that they can tell these things to. And I really feel like that is a part of our role. If not, if not anything else, that is a huge part of um, primary care. It's a huge reason to be in the field. It's, you know, so that's something that I feel like I really want to get out there. I really want my colleagues and um, medical students and residents to know that these are the kind of uncomfortable questions that you have to ask. And you have to, another point is, and I'm sure that you learned this when you were in medical school, is, you know, when you're screening uh, an adolescent for any kind of, you know, alcohol use or tobacco use or whatever, you ask the parent to leave the room, right? We still do that. And it's the same when it comes to abuse questions. If you have a patient coming in for their physical and they're coming in with their partner you can't ask in front of the partner and you have to be you have to understand and sense the room you have to sense if there's any tension or if there's any kind of over speaking right we need to see if somebody is has more power in the room as well right I think that these are the things that you pick up on which leads you to ask those questions as well. And it's easy to ask someone to walk out of the room. You know what? I have to ask a few personal questions. Do you mind stepping out for a sec? And usually the answer is okay. Um, and then you ask them to step out. They go to the waiting room. And then you ask those uncomfortable questions. And you just hope that they feel comfortable enough to tell you the honest truth. What are the guidelines exactly, though? Is this something that should be done on an annual basis at every visit? Um, is there a strict guideline or a recommendation for that? So there's no strict guidelines, but um, the recommendations are there. So one recommendation in particular is about patients that are pregnant. So pregnant patients, 96% of patients that are pregnant receive prenatal care. That's a huge percentage. So what does that mean? They get 12 plus visits in that 9 to 10 month period because we know that pregnancy is really 10 months, not 9 mm -hmm. months. True. Anyway, so they get, you know, say 12 plus visits. Every opportunity is an opportunity to ask if someone's being abused. That's a particularly um, prevalent time for abuse also, isn't it, during right. pregnancy? Right. So the statistics show that, I think I have the number here, actually. Let me look for it for a sec. If we could just take a pause. Okay. Yeah. Nearly one in six pregnant women have been either abused or hurt by their partner in the United States. That's a crazy high number. That's crazy. And that's over 320,000 pregnant women per year. Wow. That is unbelievable. So if you see six women that are pregnant, one of them is being abused. That's a, that's a crazy statistic. It's like, so wow. the, and there's so many implications. So so the, another thing that I I was uh, reading was that what are the side effects that happen to the patient if they're being abused, especially during pregnancy? Because this guideline, like I said, is for 
adolescent to 40-year-old women that are of the childbearing age. So it's uh, patients that are prior to pregnancy, during pregnancy, postpartum. So what are the implications uh, and what, what happens to these women? Very, very detailed stuff that I was reading. And something that really got to me was, so not only do these women get these emotional and mental side effects, but it affects the babies. So how does it affect the baby? Preterm births, spontaneous abortions, and low, low birth weight babies are born from patients that are being physically or mentally or emotionally abused. Makes sense, yeah. It makes sense. And you know why more? Because a lot of these patients, when they're abused, they pick up other habits, whether it's alcohol, drug use, or smoking. And we know that smoking and, and drug use and alcohol use um, are risk factors for gestational hypertension, which in, I guess, like, you know, layman's terms is basically high blood pressure during pregnancy. And that high blood pressure during pregnancy can cause preterm birth, spontaneous abortions, and low birth weight babies. So that prenatal care visit is so vital. Right. It's so vital. We need to screen. And it's not just those visits. You see patients that are pregnant. I see patients that are pregnant. You know, we all, the patient comes in with the rash and she's pregnant. You know, that's an opportunity. Sure. It's an opportunity for all of us because we all see these patients. And every visit is an opportunity to ask and to bring up the topic. As uncomfortable as it is, it's so important. And you're right. We And another thing is that what do we do? I think you had asked right. me that earlier. There's a lot of social support, uh, social services support that's out there. So that, just like maybe if we can sort of specifically touch on sure. it. Say I see a patient. Mm-hmm who's pregnant, has a rash, and you know, I asked her the screening questions and identified that, yeah, there's something, you know, there's some sort of abuse going on, right? So like, what, like what's the specific measure that I take at that point? Okay, so first, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's talk about the tools that you, there's a couple of tools as well, and I didn't mention that earlier. I want to talk about those tools. So there are screening tools in place, and those are either printouts or acronyms that you can use. And one of them was... Um, Give me a second. A few of them. So one of the tools is called HARK, H-A-R-K, and that is humiliation, afraid, rape, kick, HARK. Another one is HITS, hurt, insult, threaten, scream. And there are more. There are more tools out there. These are the tools that physicians can use. And you just get familiar with them. Some of them are questionnaires, so you can ask the patient to fill something out. And even if it's, you know, I think that an OB can have that a part of their, because we all have that paper that the patient fills out in the waiting room. And that's a screening tool that we can use, just like the depression screening tool that we use as a vital sign, right? Mm -hmm. We could teach our medical assistants to to ask these questions. You know, because our medical assistants, they put your patient in the room, they take their vitals, and then they screen them for, um, depression in my in my practice at least we do the PHQ two which is a depression screening tool that my medical assistant does and that prompts me. So even if you just start with that, just a depression screening, or one of these screening tools, it can prompt you to go further and ask those questions. And then the things that we do as physicians as, as clinicians, 
um, is basically first and foremost, we need to know what social services, social support is out there, social service support that's out there. We need to know what's local, right? We need to know, I, for example, have case managers. I have social workers that I, I tend to refer to. Um, the case managers are really important in this in this um, specific topic because they're the ones that go further and they're the ones that really find what service this patient needs. So is this someone who works in your practice? Yes, we have a caseworker. So what if like you know, someone who's like a private practice? Like, you know, sure. you, it sounds like where you are, there's like tons of resources, yeah. which is amazing for your patients. Yes. But for like that guy who has or gal who has their you know shingle hung up and has their own practice yeah what do they do like is there some government or like, yes. like county person that so you the call first or? first thing that you can do is called a ps the adult um protective services protective yeah. services i, I didn't even know there was an adult protective yes services. yes there is I'll give you, i have the number Okay. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Yeah, that's end. great. Yeah, we'll we put should, it on, we should we'll link put it. it on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you need to know what the sources are out there. So I think that the first thing that you can uh, refer to is adult protective services and have the number on hand. Is it, You could Google it, you know, any yeah. anything like that. So, and the other... So that's for any, anything really. Like anything. When any adult is in some sort of danger you would call just like a child you'd call child protective services exactly okay. and they are the ones that provide the services they will provide home visits they will provide counseling and under the affordable care act it's covered that's amazing N- no co-insurance no co-pays and you don't even have to meet your deductible so these are the things that the um the federal government has put in place as well because it's that important we I mean, imagine if somebody that's of a lower socioeconomic status and they're being abused, they're afraid. What if this costs me money? Well, it depends on the Medicare, Medicaid situation as well. And when it comes to Affordable Care Act and under each um, private insurance that's there, they are required to provide those services, counseling, whatever it may take at no charge to the patient. So that's a really big plus that we have in this in this country. And I think that, you know, people really, really need to know that. We need to know what, you're right, we need to know what's available for our patients right. because we can't just blindly ask a question and then move on. So one of the things that I've taken away from this is I honestly didn't know that there were, I mean, maybe it's because I, you know, uh, I'm not that not that not smart enough to know this, but I never knew there was an adult protective services. Yeah, and I think that's uh, incredibly helpful to know because yes. I guess the biggest thing for me is okay if I identify an issue, like what that what am I going to do for my patient, you yeah. know? But so that's that's Absolutely. really really helpful. Um, I guess one of the other things that we should touch on is you know what which patients are at risk. Is there a certain demographic that's at risk? Is there a yeah. certain type of patient that's at risk? Um, you know, who who's at risk? Sure. So like I said earlier, the guideline really does refer to women of childbearing age, and that's adolescents to 40s. However, the women that are people that are more at risk are younger women, people that have economic hardship, and they have marital difficulties. Those are really people that you should be screening a little bit more. And also of, I think I should say, you know, the economic hardship 
obviously. So mm-hmm. lower socioeconomic status. That's mm-hmm. a that's a big one. I think and also another one was people that have experienced some kind of violence as a, as a child. And it's it's crazy because who really asked that, you know? So if somebody opens up to you some about that, then it's a it's a segue of asking those questions as well. And obviously when these things happen, there must be significant long-term effects for for the patients. Um, what are they and what are measures that can be taken to sort of, you know, treat those? Sure. So long-term effects include, there are so many, you know, from aside from the immediate effects of injury and whether it's an unwanted pregnancy or an STD, which also isn't a long-term effect. You know, if you get an unwanted pregnancy, you have to decide what to do. That's a huge decision, especially as a young person. Or an STD, you know, females that get STDs, they have difficulty, they, a lot of them can have difficulty with their reproduction later on in their life. So these are long-term effects as well. And But the other effects are whether it's depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, alcohol abuse, um, tobacco use, or even drug use. So these are all things that are reasons. These are reasons that we really should be looking at the patient and asking them what's going on in their lives because we can prevent it. It is preventable. Abuse is preventable. Although it's a hard topic to get into, it is so important that we do get into it because it's preventable. We can prevent a death. We could prevent injury, long-term pain, you know, long-term or an unwanted pregnancy or an STD. These are all the things that are so, the reasons that I believe it's so important to ask those questions. I think one of the things you touched on earlier was sometimes this is sort of like a generational cycle of behavior that happens, you know, like if it, if it happened to you. Yes. That particular individual may be more likely to either be abused or you know, um, be abusive. If that cycle can be broken, I mean, yeah. that's like the whole point of. And and with the services that are there, they do the home services, so they see you know what is happening in the house. What can we do to help these people and their relationships? And a lot of the interventions are even they even include financial support. They include um, support in the marital relationship, whether it's counseling or whatever it is, they educate. They educate on better communication skills. So these are the interventions that are in place. And after doing all these interventions, 76% of these interventions show one statistical significant benefit. So we know that any significant benefit is a reason to do that act. So we want to per, we want to do the screening just for that one person. Even if right. it's this one person that you can help. You want to screen and it's it doesn't take a lot of time. It takes seconds to just ask those questions and they're important. If not anything else, if you want to skip the mammogram question or the colonoscopy question if you can or if, you know, they're not getting their flu shot that day, ask them the question. Right. Yeah, I mean that's a very encouraging statistic, actually. Yeah. Another statistic that you that you taught me today is, which is totally staggering, is every nine seconds a woman is abused. Is that the right statistic? So yeah, in the United States, every nine seconds, a woman is either assaulted or beat. Wow. It's unbelievable, and 
1.5 million women per year are either raped or assaulted in the United States. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. These numbers are crazy. And it's really sad, but we have to do we have to know what we can do. We have to know our role and where we what we can how we can help our patients. Well, I have to tell you as heavy as this topic is and as hard as as it is to talk about um I couldn't be more grateful to have you here to yeah. educate me and uh and my audience. This is really important stuff and it's going to make me a better doctor for sure. Oh, so thank you so much for having me and I'm so glad that we talked about it because it's so important to me and I hope that I was able to help someone, you know, I hope I even if you know, I don't know what your audience, who your audience demographic is, whether it's just, you know, whether it's physicians or your patients. But if someone's listening and they and they have been through something or if it's a physician that's listening and they said, you know what, let me start asking that question. Or if a patient's listening and they want to talk to their doctor, they're going to go. They're going to talk to their doctor. And doctors shouldn't be afraid to hear them. We should be open. We know and there are resources out there. And it's it's it might not be the easiest thing to do, but it's why we it's why we practice medicine. We are out there to help people. Could have said it better. Um, I'll just close by saying that your patients are very lucky to have you as Thank a doctor. Thank you so much. Thanks so again. are yours. I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. The audio for this podcast can be found on Apple's iTunes and SoundCloud. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.